Future-proof gold from Newstalk. Now, I'm, I'm very excited about this next item because for a long, long time, I have been reading with interest about an organization in America called DARPA. And I'm delighted to be joined by Annie Jacobson, who's an investigative journalist who's written a book called The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA. We're going to talk about this organization for quite some time because they are responsible for some of the coolest things and some of the scariest things in our world today. Welcome to the program, Annie. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off, if you don't mind, just explain who DARPA is and, and where and when did it come? Give us some context. DARPA was uh, born in 1958, and it was a direct result of Sputnik going up when the Russians sent up this little 23-inch sphere for the first time in the Cold War. The Soviets had beaten the Americans in the science race, and that hit hard. And interestingly, since then, America has never been beaten by a foreign nation in terms of military technology. So it kind of sets the stage for the stakes that we're talking about here when we talk about DARPA and we talk about military power. Why, why was Sputnik so terrifying for America? Well, certainly it was not that little, you know, sphere the size of a basketball. It was the fact that the birth of the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, had now begun because you need that much power, that much thrust, to be able to send a satellite into orbit. And the Americans and the Soviets had been working neck and neck on it, sort of, to launch the world's first satellite. And the Soviets did that. And what that then meant was that if you had that much thrust, if you had that much power, in a rocket, in a missile. Soon, the Soviets would be able to launch, instead of a 23-inch sphere in the nose cone of the missile, they would be able to launch a nuclear warhead. And that was the threat, and that was a very real threat. So what happened then? Eisenhower pulled together this organization to lead the country's military technology. What happened? What sort of things began to fall out of DARPA historically? Well, one of the most interesting things is that defining moment when Secretary of Defense Neil McElroy goes to Congress at Eisenhower's behest and says that the reason that this agency needs to be created is to create vast weapon systems of the future. And that is an incredible statement when you really think about it, because he's not saying we need to create a really strong military scientific technology for today. He's talking about vast weapon systems, plural, of the future. So there's this sense that this organization is going to lead the world always, sort of in perpetuity. So DARPA starts out kind of controversially in terms of the military services, but very quickly it becomes the center of power. And it takes control of all of the space race issues. So before NASA was NASA, it was ARPA. Wow, I didn't know that. How did I not know that? Yes. And so in 19... And and that's how it began. It It was this vast weapon systems of the future in this pivotal time period in 1958. It was looking like the militarization of space was imminent. That is an incredibly dangerous concept. That fear, by the way, is very present again today, that space will be militarized, 
if it has not already been. Oh, come on, honey. You, as, as, a, as an investigative journalist, knowing what you know about the American military, you must assume that space is militarized in some way. I would assume, but I would not state. Yeah. What sort of things happened in the Vietnam War, the first test of this organization, the first major test? Were there new technologies and new things tried out in Vietnam that had come from DARPA? Almost all of the military technology we have today was born in Vietnam. When I began to understand that, I was astonished. So there's a group of scientists who play a very important role in DARPA's history, and they still exist today, and they're called the Jason Scientists, J-A-S-O-N. And if you Google Jason, you will get a million conspiracy theories, including that they work with the Bilderberg Group and that they're part of the New World Order, etc., etc., etc. I interviewed the scientist, the nuclear physicist, Marvin Goldberger, who was a co-founder of the Jason Scientist, who just died last year. And I also interviewed a number of Goldberger's colleagues, all Jason scientists, who began solving the Pentagon's scientific problems in 1960 and continued to work on DARPA programs throughout the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, all the way up to the War on Terror that I write about in the book. And the Jason scientists were tasked by the Pentagon to try to figure out how to win the Vietnam War. And specifically, they were asked what to do about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So just a quick overview for listeners of the Ho Chi Minh Trail is it's this, you know, underneath the jungle canopy, literally thousands of miles of dirt that Viet Cong fighters are traveling down from the north, where the weapons are, to the south, where they're creating this insurgency and fighting the American forces. And with them, mostly barefooted and on ox carts and bicycles, they're bringing weapons. And there's this vast system, and again, there's analogies today to what you see in the Middle East with the war on terror. But nothing that big, powerful U.S. Army with all its rocketry and its nuclear missiles and et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing the United States government can do about it. We're losing the war because this trail is impossible to penetrate. No radar overhead can see through it. It's just an absolute nightmare. And the Jason scientists are told by then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, figure out how to beat this thing, literally. Hmm. And what they come up with is profound because it exists all around us today. What they came up with was something called sensor technology. So in 1963, 4, 5, this is considered, you know, fantasy. It's considered part of science fiction that you could actually spy on the enemy visually using computers. Remember, computers in those days were the size of a house. Mm. And so the idea, what the Jason scientists came up with, was that you're going to put these small cameras. When I say small, I mean small the size of, you know, a filing cabinet, audio sensors, ground sensors. You're going to seed the Ho Chi Minh Trail with this sensor technology. The, the American Army dropped sensors the size of filing cabinets down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to try and spy on the Viet Cong. The filing cabinets were positioned in jeeps right at the edge of the trail that was controlled by the trail. And out of helicopters, Soldiers and airmen would drop sensors the size of, they look like giant darts. I have photographs of them in the book. So they're sort of like a three-foot-tall pencil. Wow. And the bottom is pointed like the pencil point. And these soldiers, many of whom I interviewed, by the way, a number of whom were shot down in these incredibly harrowing 
firefights because the Ho Chi Minh Trail is taking ground fire from the Viet Cong fighters because the fighters know that this technology is being dropped. And the plan was to then have those sensors, which, by the way, were kind of painted with camouflage in sort of a very hokey, corny 1960s way. And they would land on the trail, embed themselves in the ground, and then this technology, which, by the way, is 100% prevalent today, we're talking about this is now 45, almost 50 years ago. You're, this is like Internet um, of Things on the Ho Chi Minh Trail 50 years ago. On the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was called McNamara's Fence. The filing cabinets talked to the, these darts, and that was it? Or how, how, how did the network work? Ready for this? It yep. was a system of systems. It was the first vast weapon system of the future, and it's what we see now today. So the filing cabinet-sized racks of equipment are in the Jeeps. By the way, there are drones involved. I bet you didn't know that. Most people didn't know that. I didn't know that, that the drones were flown. They were called Nike Panther and Nike Gazelle. These were two DARPA programs in the Vietnam War. So you have the drones flying, you have aircraft overhead, you have the darts on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they're communicating together in this very early way in which we see now the Internet communicate. And the information is then going up to the aircraft, the U.S. aircraft that's circling in a racetrack position over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you know, high enough up so that the Viet Cong fighters can't take down those planes. And then inside those aircraft are computer systems that are feeding information back to a central information center in Thailand being run by the U.S. military. There was also technology used that went horribly wrong. Wasn't it DARPA that came up with Agent Orange? Absolutely. Chemical warfare was a big thrust, as they called it. That's a terrific example of something that DARPA did, kind of cutting-edge science. Let's defoliate the jungle without thinking through the consequences. At great, I mean, extraordinary peril. You can't even begin to describe how badly and how wrong that went. But that was 100% a DARPA program. It was run out of the Pentagon. And in the book, I have some amazing documentation that had never been revealed before about that interplay between the President of the United States, you know, JFK, this was an early Vietnam program, by the way, communicating directly with the lead program manager at DARPA at the time, then called ARPA, about how to you know, deforest the jungle. So the idea was that they would literally just incinerate with this acid, uh, so to speak, all of the foliage so they could actually finally see the Viet Cong. Is that the idea? Yes, that was plan B, but plan A was actually to starve the Viet Cong. So the original target was the food supply. Right. And this, you know, crept right up to the edge of the rules of war because of the Geneva Convention, because that's not allowable. But this was this gray area that ARPA was operating under. The Vietnam War was profound in a number of ways in that we actually, we the Americans, ARPA, set up what were called combat test centers, scientific test centers in Saigon and elsewhere where we actually created the weapons in Vietnam so that you could you were out of the purview, out of the eyesight of Congress. And I was able to access some of those and get some of those documents declassified to show the kind of weapons that were being made, but the majority of them remain classified. And what I found most interesting in terms of today's technology is that in the secret laboratories in Thailand, ARPA was working on crowd control chemical weapons, and you really see that today 
in terms of riot control. And this is where it all began. And this is, interestingly, done by a third party. So part of what DARPA does is it hires civilian laboratories, be it a university, a defense contractor, and it gives them the contract and allows them to work, you know, as a third party in a secret location. And many times the contracts are obscured so that they can't specifically be traced back to ARPA until decades later when the Freedom Information Act makes that information available to someone like myself. I now want to talk a little bit about the really scary stuff that appears to being developed at pace in DARPA. So we, we talked about in Vietnam, they had drones and they had sensor technology. We're now in 2016. That's decades later. What does DARPA have now? What are they working on now? Or is it possible to know that without getting killed? No, it's, it's very, very easy to know that. I mean, what's fascinating is that there's an extraordinary number of documents out of the Pentagon that are on the public record. They just take a long time to locate, and they're very long. But I have located them and read them. <laughs> and so I'll be clear when we talk about this here about what is, what is fact and what is suggestion. But the biggest thing to consider with all this sensor technology is about the human body. Because that is where DARPA is, that is where I think is the most cautionary tale. Because the fiction that you hear, or rather the science fiction that you hear in, out in the ether, is that America is creating the super soldier. And the reason I say that's fiction is because it's, it's vague enough to kind of go, oh, that sounds like something in the movie. But specifically where it is actually science fact is the fact that that actually is what DARPA is doing. But it has a different name. It's called Brain Computer Interface, BCI. It's called augmented cognition, and it has to do with putting neuroprosthetics or brain chips into the human body. It has to do with DARPA creating what are called biohybrids, animals and including humans that are part machines. And back up for a moment to where, where this biology started with DARPA, because I think it's important to realize how recent this is. Only when the Berlin Wall went down and DARPA learned about the Soviet secret covert biological weapons programs that were huge inside the Soviet Union. And those scientists defected, a number of whom work for DARPA. Only then did the Pentagon realize, oh my God, we are behind the curve in terms of biology. So before that, as one DARPA scientist told me, there were no biologists at the Pentagon. Biology was seen as kind of squishy science. science. Mm. And then once biological weapons, this idea came about, and this is kind of in the late eight, this is when the wall went down, so now like 89, 90, 91, now there's an influx of biologists. And by 1999, human augmentation program, and I interviewed Michael Goldblatt, who was the program director. He's often called the father of transhumanism. Hmm. This is this idea, some think it's a good idea, some think it's a very bad idea, that humans, the natural process of evolution, natural in quotes, is to actually augment ourselves with machines. So we become smarter, faster. All of the human talents become augmented through science, through sensor technology inside the human body. So this is something that we've covered quite a bit on the program, the idea of transhumanism. So people who've put uh, magnets in their fingers to be able to see around corners and be able to see in infrared, people who've hacked their ears to be able to hear Wi-Fi, and even some people who have experimented on themselves to allow themselves to see in night vision. But that's all sort of 
seems like sort of Mickey Mouse stuff compared to what I imagine DARPA is working on. So can you talk to us a little bit about what we know that they can do or what we know they have done in terms of augmenting human ability? Absolutely, and I assure you it's not Mickey Mouse. It's very real and very spooky, okay? Spooky in as much that it's unknown because my information, most of my information from the book that is actual fact based on interviews with the program manager, Michael Goldbach, is what was happening in the early days of the program in the year 2000. Okay? Now, that's before the iPhone even existed. The iPhone, by the way, the first iPhone, has more technology in it than the entire NASA space program had when it sent astronauts to the moon. So you're talking about a program, the program that I know about called Persistence in Combat, to begin augmenting soldiers 16 years ago. Technology, I mean, people were barely using the Internet. Mm. And what was going on then was everything from, for example, Michael Goldblatt shared with me about a pain vaccine. So using biotechnology to be able to inject a soldier with something so after they are shot, they don't feel pain. Things like allowing a soldier to not have to sleep or rather go into hibernation like a bear, and actual bears were studied, by the way, to kind of give a soldier a long-term sleep and then he can go out and perform at a high level of performance. We're talking, you know, Green Berets, Special Forces, on the battlefield multiple days. These kinds of things, in 1999, are now made public. Wow. Imagine what's going on in 2016. So you talked about brain-computer interfaces, and we've seen, we have definitely seen the good side of that. I remember seeing a woman, I think her name is Kathy Hutchison, who had BrainGate, a brain-computer interface that allowed her to use her mind. She was fully paralyzed, I believe, and she was able to drink a glass of water using her mind and uh, controlling a robotic arm. So that technology is obviously in development and, w- and will hopefully make its way to people who are in that sort of situation. What do you think the aim of, if it's not, I'm trying to think of what, why you would do that, why you would put a computer in someone's brain if it, if it was for military purposes, what, why would you put a computer in someone's brain if you weren't trying to make them, uh, if you weren't trying to heal them? Well, what it's for is a DARPA program, a Pentagon program called Human-Robot Interaction, HRI. And through augmented cognition programs, DARPA is creating what they call human-machine biohybrids. We would call them cyborgs, okay? Now, again, you know, people listening might say, well, that sounds like science fiction, but let me give you some facts. The first biohybrid program was in 1999 when Michael Globlatt ran a program to put a neuroprosthetic into the brain of a rat so that DARPA scientists could steer the rat wirelessly through a maze. Mm. So perhaps that answers your question about healing. They are not doing that to heal the rat of anything. They are doing that to get the rat from point A to point B controlled from an outside source. Oh, come on. You're telling me, are you honestly telling me that DARPA is developing a remote control for brains? Okay, so stay with me for a second. Okay. Because I think it's important to see the progression because science is about progression. So you have the rat going through the maze in 1999. Now, in 2014, DARPA does the same brain control to a mandica sexta moth, okay? But what they do, and because neuroprosthetics 
have advanced because biotechnology, nanotechnology, and computer technology have all allowed for the miniaturization of computers. DARPA in 2014 inserts a brain chip into the back of a pupa of that moth. So in other words, when the moth is still a worm, it inserts the brain chip. Then the transformation happens. The moth becomes a moth and it now has wings. It takes flight and the DARPA scientists are able to control the moth in flight. Oh my God. Okay. Now we have last year, Obama, the White House declaring the brain initiative making all kinds of wonderful, beneficent pronouncements about how we're going to cure Alzheimer's and schizophrenia and, and so on and so forth. And who has the White House partnered up with? DARPA. But I ask you, is DARPA in the business of curing schizophrenia or is DARPA in the business of creating vast weapon systems of the future? And so then you must look at DARPA's brain neuroprosthetics programs which exist today. Scientists have been interviewed by me. DARPA would not let me interview the participants. But all the programs have acronyms like REPAIR, REMIND, RAM, and they all stand for things like repairing cognitive function in brain-wounded warriors. So you have tens of thousands of soldiers, American soldiers, coming back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with traumatic brain injuries. And DARPA's claim is that the reason they have putting these pilot programs into play where they insert brain chips into the brains of the wounded soldiers and they are controlling them wirelessly. They're stimulating certain parts of the brain from an outside facility, by the way, including chemicals. This is all for the benefit of the soldier so that soldiers can restore cognitive functioning. I would not argue with you that that is a brilliant, wonderful scenario. Were it the actual true cause? But here's where you're going to get your yes, because I interviewed the Jason scientist. And the Jason scientists, if you recall, are the core scientific advisory group to DARPA. And it's a group of between 12 and 50 scientists. It is a small group. And the Jason scientists during the War on Terror wrote a paper to the Pentagon, which you can read, that says that they counseled against pursuing these neuroprosthetic programs because it could lead to, quote, high-quality brain control. Hmm. So that may not be the intention of DARPA, if we want to give them that. But when you think in terms of the military-industrial complex, that whatever weapons America creates, enemy nations create them. We created the drone in the Vietnam War. You saw it on the battlefield in Afghanistan in 2002. Now, presently, 86 nations have armed drones. This sounds so fantastical that I feel like Mel Gibson in that movie about conspiracy theories. What was it called? Oh yeah, conspiracy theory. Like I actually feel like you know, you know, when he he's kind of like he thinks everyone's out to get him, he thinks everything's going wrong, and actually they are out to get him, and things are going horribly wrong. Like I find it really hard to imagine. But then when you look back at some of the things that they've done, you kind of go, okay, that's sort of not. It's not that crazy. I mean, like developing Agent Orange, that's a pretty crazy thing to do. I just find it really difficult to believe that someone is trying to develop a computer chip so that they can control someone for military use. Well, let me tell you this. I asked that exact same question to Michael Goldblatt, the father of transhumanism for DARPA. I said, what about the unintended consequences? And he said to me, everything has unintended consequences, which is true. And I said, okay, but what about the fact that the Jason scientists warn 
specifically against neuroprosthetic programs because they could lead to high-quality brain control. And what Michael Goldblatt said to me astonished me because I didn't know it until he said it to me. He said, the Jason scientists are hardly relevant anymore. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the new organization that now really matters to DARPA is called the Defense Science Board, the DSB. Go ahead and have a look at, into them, Annie. And so I did. And what I learned, that the Defense Science Board sits inside the Pentagon. And unlike the Jason scientists, who, by the way, are full-time university professors. So since 1960, all the Jason scientists would be at Princeton or Harvard or Berkeley or MIT or Caltech. They'd be at one of America's outstanding universities teaching students. And in the summers, they would gather together and work on these hard DARPA problems, okay? The Defense Science Board are not full-time professors and part-time defense scientists. They are full-time defense contractors. They sit on the board of Boeing, of Lockheed, of General Dynamics, of all of the very companies that make the robots that will fly in the air. No, you're freaking me out, (laughs) Now, by the way, this is all actually fact, not speculation, because the Defense Science Board's reports are on the public record. Okay. Anyone who wants to read them. Okay, so I want to um, finally talk a little bit about robots because in the end, all of my interviews seem to come back to robots. So there's a lot of work done in AI at DARPA and you know we've seen driverless cars, challenge and all that sort of stuff that's come out of DARPA. That's the sort of the, the happy, smiley public face of DARPA. But there is a lot of work being done in autonomous killing machines. These are robots that will one day be able to make the decision themselves whether or not to terminate a target as opposed to having someone press a button and letting you know letting a, a missile or a machine gun come out of a flying drone. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if everything that you thought before was spooky and sounded like a Mel Gibson movie, what I'm going to tell you will really make that sound like a fairy tale because the reality, and many people, most people do not realize this, but the reality at the Pentagon and this is according to Defense Department Directive 3000.09, which you can Google and read for yourself. And it's called Autonomy in Weapons Systems. And it says that the movement is toward full autonomy. So that is not a maybe. That is a plan, because DARPA plans for the next 25, 30 years out. And that is what the plan is. And this document very specifically delineates how weapon systems of the future will get to that future position where they are fully autonomous. And when I say fully autonomous, the short version is a general can hold up or a lieutenant commander can hold up a photograph of Baghdadi or whoever the terrorist is of the day to a drone, to a robot, and say, go kill this individual and report back to me. That's full autonomy. There is absolutely no control of a human operator. Wow. That is what the government, the Pentagon, is moving from, and these are documents that you can read. Now, you ask yourself about the brain chip program. Another discussion that I've had with numerous DARPA scientists is that the reason for the brain chip programs and the augmented cognition and the Manduka-sex, the moth programs, and the robo-rat programs, and the biohive programs is to make soldiers and airmen comfortable with robots. 
And that is what is happening over the next 25 years, where soldiers will become comfortable with robots and will also become robotically enhanced themselves so that this is a gradual progression toward the new way of warfare. That's really, really terrifying. And I suppose that the fact that that is a stated mission as opposed to something that, because I spoke to a, a professor over here, a professor in University of Sheffield by the name of Noel Sharkey, who's been campaigning against major governments from investing in autonomous weaponry because we don't know where that might lead. It's really spooky speaking to you about all this, Annie. Is, is there one thing that's happening now that gives you any sense of hope in DARPA or any, any sense of, you know what, actually maybe something really good will come of this? Or has it all been just a trip down? Well, the, ho- the hope is absolutely like your radio show, my book, Noel Sharkey's work, and everyone else who is working on this issue and discussing it. Because as President Eisenhower himself said, in his final speech, you know, he, he spoke about the military-industrial complex and warned against it, and specifically warned against defense contractors taking over. And that is often, you know, recited and rehashed and so forth. However, the second part of his speech is very hopeful, because he also says that it's incredibly important to have a strong national security, but that it must be balanced with an alert and knowledgeable citizenry. Hmm. And I think that's why the work of journalists, my work sits on the shoulders of thousands of other people. I'm sure you feel the same way. The work that we do is simply to inform people in a way that's digestible to them, because no one wants to sit down and read Pentagon Directive 3000.09. That's 145 pages, by the way. But they will listen to your show, and they will think about it, and they don't have to necessarily go petition Congress. People vote in very simple ways. I always say people vote with their dollar. People now vote by what they read on the Internet. Mm. All of these things, thanks to DARPA technology, are calculated. And the movement, society's movement, goes toward what people are interested in. And that is why I think it is a hopeful thought at the end. The basic human citizenry and action. Well, it's a really detailed book and it's a really comprehensive look at this fascinating agency. We've just dipped into a few pages and scraped the surface. I hope people do read the book. It's called The Pentagon's Brain, an Uncensored History of DARPA. Annie Jacobson, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 